You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 14th of May 2018 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Andrew Muller on today's show. Exactly 70 years ago, the United States, under President Harry Truman, became the first nation to recognize the State of Israel. Today, we officially open the United States Embassy in Jerusalem. We have heard extensive gunfire. We've witnessed some aerial strikes bombing inside Gaza. Was moving an embassy really worth it? My guests Terry Stiasny and Robert Fox will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including a US ambassador's declaration of the end of consensus diplomacy, another possible comeback by the apparently politically and physically immortal Silvio Berlusconi, and would you go and see a film shot on location in Saudi Arabia? That's all coming up on Midori House on Monocle 24 right now. So, welcome to Midori House. My guests today are Terry Stiasny, the author and journalist, and Robert Fox, defence editor of The Evening Standard. Welcome both to the show. Now, the screens of the world's news networks have been split all day between a splendid ceremony attending the opening of the new United States Embassy in Jerusalem and the carnage occurring a bit over an hour's drive away along Israel's fortified frontier with Gaza. At least 52 Palestinians are reported to have been killed and nearly 2,500 injured by by Israeli troops during a reprise of recent protests along the border. The relocation of the American embassy from Tel Aviv has been long promised by previous American administrations, but until now deferred due to the likelihood of protests such as today's. Um, Terry, uh, first of all, le- leaving aside what's been occurring uh, along the border with Gaza today, and we will get to that, but in and of itself, is there any reason really why America's or anybody else's embassy should not be in Jerusalem, which is the capital city of Israel. Because that's still not internationally recognised as the capital city of Israel and because the one thing that everybody said when there were still some sort of peace talks going on up until a few years ago was that the final status of Jerusalem is something that has to be negotiated as part of any settlement. And, you know, in Jerusalem, everything, you know, whether religiously or otherwise, everything is symbolic. If you go and move your embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, even though it's in fact going to be a very small embassy with about half a dozen staff, as far as I can make out, for, for the time being until they actually have a bigger building and stuff, if that ever happens... The symbolism of doing that is is exactly bound to cause trouble, and they knew must have known that it was going to cause trouble, and that's why they've done it. And you know, every other country in the world, apart from I think uh, Guatemala and Paraguay, have not followed suit, and everybody else is sticking with the status quo. I mean, we're going to be talking about diplomatic groupthink later on, but sometimes there are good reasons for that. Uh, Robert, as Terry correctly points out, in that part of the world, everything is symbolic, and on that score, regardless of whether you think moving the American embassy to Jerusalem is a bright idea or not, uh, how clever was it doing it more or less exactly on the 70th anniversary uh, of what the Palestinians call the Nakba. Not, and, and the, it's the day of foundation the, the Israelis give of their state 70 years ago. Um, what it is doing, and it's the signal that one can't get deep into the Trump agenda, and I don't think Trump gets deep into any agenda, 
judging by the uh, indications that are coming about out about his attitude to briefing notes from people like the previous uh, National Security Advisor, H.R. McMaster. They haven't thought the consequences out of this because, as Terry rightly pointed out, Jerusalem is one of the five cardinal points of the peace process, and it is one of the things to be settled at the end, the status of Jerusalem and the status of the two states. I'm sorry going about it a long long way. What Trump has done is put a dagger in the heart of the peace process looking at a two-state solution. And it is quite clear to me that he, Bolton, uh, Pompeo, haven't thought out the consequences of this because now you're saying it's a dichotomous at most one-state solution and Israel going to, is it going to really be able to live with that over the next 10 or 15 years? I mean, Terry, it's obvious enough why Israel wants the US and other countries to move their embassies to Jerusalem, because obviously it legitimises, confirms the idea of Jerusalem as Israel's capital city. But so to an extent, this is a, a triumph for Israel, America moving its embassy there, and certainly Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has welcomed it as such. But given the juxtaposition between uh, the ceremony today and where what, what we're witnessing in Gaza, this is not a good public relations day for Israel, is it? I, I don't think it's uh, can be a, a good day. And I, I mean, any day that has ended with, at the last count, probably at least fifty people dead, uh, thousands of people injured. We don't, you know, the the toll is probably going up as we speak. Is not a good day because you know, as as Robert says, you know, this is any kind of talk of a peace process has been effectively stalled for the last four or five years or so. Uh, how you then manage this how you progress any further when you've got you know millions of angry palestinians in gaza who are you know going for the border and trying to to break that down you know it's the as as we say it's the 70 years since the foundation of of the state of israel or you know as the palestinians call it uh, that catastrophe this solution it hasn't got any easier it hasn't you know doesn't seem to be any progress towards any kind of peace talks. Yes, you might get that amazing moment of symbolism in Jerusalem, but it's not going to make uh, running the state or having you know any kind of negotiations with your neighbours any easier. And the question is, you know, is that do people actually want it to be easier? Is there any kind of will here to have any kind of progress towards a, a, a peaceful agreement. Uh, Robert, looking at Gaza, those figures that we do have of at least 52 dead and two and a half thousand, give or take, injured come from uh, the Palestinian Health Ministry in Gaza. Uh, there clearly has been a use again uh, of live fire by Israeli troops in response to these demonstrations. Um, from Israel's point of view, is there any, as far as you can perceive political or military logic to the use of live ammunition. There are other ways uh, of deterring demonstration. Even if we accept Israel's view that these are violent demonstrations which are threatening uh, the integrity of their border defences and that they are, as any country is entitled to defend their border, there are other ways of doing it, aren't there? There having a great deal of difficulty, uh, particularly given the leadership uh, that they have got, political leadership in, in Israel. It isn't just Netanyahu, it's Avidor Lieberman, the uh, the defence minister, who is, is very, very hawkish. And I, I think um, that uh, Israel is going in a very strange and interesting um, direction in terms of propaganda because already they've got out, and I was reading on the Times of Israel, which is by no means an extreme publication, it is very, very moderate indeed, 
um, it's just been flashing that Shin Bet claims that these people that have been shot were Hamas agents paid, pay to do what? By Iran. So um, we can see which way this one's going there. Trump and Netanyahu are in a very, very belligerent frame of mind. And uh, I think this is what is worrying uh, people who are trying to put pull up the handbrake in the Trump administration, like Jim Mattis, who we have heard is being given the same cold shoulder treatment that his uh, fellow officer, H.R. McMaster, w- w- was done. And it just seems to be um, a devil may care. Well, it, 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 it's not. It's it, it, it's stirring up uh, trouble. They're, they're, they're seeing threats probably where they are and where they aren't. And Israel's getting itself into a terrible pickle because it's got Gaza, it's got stuff going on within Israel, you've got demonstrations in Jerusalem, and it seems to be fighting an on-off air-to-ground war in Syria against Hezbollah and Iran. It is looking very, very bad at the moment. And Trump seems to be pouring oil on troubled waters, and as the old expression goes, and setting light to it. Well, let's move along slightly because a different U.S. ambassador, specifically Washington's new man in Berlin, Richard Grenell, has outlined some principles of his boss's views on foreign policy. The era of consensual diplomatic groupthink, he believes, is over. The future is nations, by which we can assume he means his nation, proceeding on their own initiative. He further reassured that this is just fine under the United States' present leadership as, I quote here, the strategy of Donald Trump is always Peace. Uh, he probably, in retrospect, picked a bad weekend uh, to coin that one. Um, Terry, does he have any kind of point about the uh, the drawbacks of diplomatic groupthink? Uh, he's certainly approaching diplomacy in a different way from the traditional. You know, the traditional very, phrase. Very diplomatically put. Well, undiplomatically put. I was just. I'm try- I don't know where the quote comes from originally that I heard years ago, which is that uh, diplomacy is the art of saying the nasty- nastiest possible things in the nicest possible way. Um, and <laughs> this is obviously not an attitude that, uh, that Mr. Grinnell takes. Um, but I think sometimes you know, sometimes groupthink is wrong, and sometimes you should challenge it. Some, but sometimes it's there for a reason. And take a couple couple of recent examples. I mean, the, he's talking in this interview uh, given to one of a German paper very much about Iran. And he says in terms, you know, he says, we all know Iran is a threat. Um, and he says that uh, sanctions work when in the international community is united. And then in the same answer, he goes on and says, each country has to de- decide for themselves whether they think sanctions work. Now, the reason diplomacy works as it does is because there are sets of rules. There are rules like when you sign a treaty with somebody, you don't unilaterally w- withdraw from it and break it. So, you know, there's a reason that diplomats think along the same lines, because they're trying to work together from the point of view of different countries to come up with a solution that everyone can expect. So if, if everybody just permanently says what they think in the public domain. You know, it's just going to end in a fist fight, as far as I can see. But Robert, is there an argument that consensus does promote stasis? I mean, th- th- it's commonly complained about the UN that it can't get anything significant done because, of course, there are the permanent veto-wielding members of the UN Security Council who very rarely agree on any one thing. When we've seen a lot of international, some international enterprises in recent years, uh, I guess specifically in the Balkans, have been done under the aegis of NATO rather than the UN for that reason. Is, is there ever an excuse for a country just to sort of take a flyer? The UN wasn't bad in Bosnia. The UN was bad mouth for that, and a lot of very brave people 
took their own initiative, and that was just teamwork, and it was principally led uh, militarily, and they w- it wasn't a military occupation. I'm talking about Umprefor, and God knows what that would have happened the, if they had first mandate. And it was and it was pri- primarily the Brits and the French, and they just got alongside each other and did stuff. They had a terrible, terrible setback because of consensus, which was Srebrenica, and they took that opportunity and and ran with it. So I think you are absolutely right. Can we go back to Mr. Grinnell? I see this is not the voice of Trump. This is the voice of John Bolton. John Bolton does not like consensus. He doesn't like international uh, arrangements. He is mistrustful, to put it diplomatically, of large organisations like the UN and NATO. And I think that this is where we've got a problem. I mean, that NATO Europe or European NATO used to curse the legacy. And there were lots to be said on both sides about it, of de Gaulle, for example. Well, now we've got... Trump and his team playing like De Gaulle uh, uh, plus. I am the leader in NATO, but I don't like NATO, and I don't like the people in NATO. It's very, very strange. And Terry explained beautifully the absolute paradox that we now have. Um, if this is anti-group thing, it's suicidal. On um, on on JCPOA, the 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 the, the agreement, uh, uh, the nuclear agreement with Iran, because what you're saying, what Trump seems to be saying, and it's the bit that nobody really calculated, he was going to he was going to be so vicious about the imp- reimposition of sanctions. He's saying. We, the United States, have broken an agreement which was given in good faith and we're going to impose sanctions and we're going to impose sanctions on those who continue to uphold the agreement. I mean, this is just bizarre. This is not even, this is not even, not even Lewis Carroll. And the thing is that you have to make alliances work. And in these delicate times, you know, take Syria, take what we're saying about Israel, take what we take talk about the South China Sea, uh, the security of Asia, Africa... It depends on alliances working on trust, because what might be, people might infer from the message of Richard Grinnell and John Bol- Bolton in Nobody We Trust, that is what America uh, first really believes. But America can't throw its weight around in the world as it once did, because over a third of its debt is owned by China. So you see, we are in the most peculiar paradox. So this idea of heroic individualism, which is what Trump, Gunnell and um, Bogdan seem to be preaching in practicality, is an absolute nonsense. Uh, Terry, Donald Trump has now been president for a little over a year, for all that it has seemed like several centuries. Can he actually claim any diplomatic successes? I mean, he has claimed a lot uh, more than I can actually count, but do any of them really stand up? How much credit for anything is he yet due? Well, I suppose if I'm trying to sort of ratchet, I think, <laughs> dredge things up. Well, let's see what happens with North Korea. I mean, the idea of an American president having a summit with uh, with Kim Jong Un was pretty much unthinkable. I mean, you know, who knows how this will play out? But so far, we actually have you know a date and a location. And I've sat in the studio before with various people being sceptical that that would ever e- we would ever even get that far. So. Yes, on one way there's progress in that direction, but then if you try to make new agreements while simultaneously ripping up old ones, how much will people trust your negotiation? I mean, I think it's one thing that we're losing sight of generally in politics too much at the moment is the need to convince other people who don't agree with you that there is some common ground, whether it's British domestic politics. That, you know, People seem to be speaking to their own little factions and not actually seeing the virtue of any other point of view. I mean, I think Macron actually played it well. Uh, you know, he went there, he, he played nicely with Trump, he sort of shook hands for the requisite half an hour, however long it was, and then turned around and you know went to Congress and said, no, 
know, this is what I believe. This is why we need you on our side. You know, t- you know, telling it how he saw it. You know, you can do both. You can, you know, be civil and make the argument. And we've got to not lose sight of that. OK, we're going to take a short break now. You're listening to Midori House with me, Andrew Muller, along with Terry Stiasny and Robert Fox. Coming up next, the inextinguishable Berlusconi. Russia is a large and unwieldy beast, but in recent decades it's been tamed by President Vladimir Putin, who's deftly tightened his grip on power. To find more about where Russia finds itself today, from its soft power to its economy, watch our animated nation survey, playing now in the film section at monocle.com. You're back with Midori House with me, Andrew Mullister. With me are Terry Stiasny and Robert Fox. Italian politics remain in a state of chaos, remarkable even by the standards of Italian politics, to the extent that fresh elections this summer have not been ruled out. An Italian court has furnished another reason why this outcome must be prevented at all costs. It has, in its wisdom, lifted the ban on former Prime Minister Silvio Berlusconi holding public office. Mr Berlusconi had been thus precluded after being convicted of tax fraud in 2013. So in the event of another vote, the 81-year-old with much younger hair would therefore be eligible to stand. Um, Robert, if I've counted this right, he's been Prime Minister four times. He couldn't really make it five, could he? He could. Oh, God. He's, he's a much better politician. I disagree with him about almost everything, but he's a much better politician than people give him uh, credit for. Um, and he's actually been very sensible it seems, in uh, the the run through this election because the consequences are absolutely dire for Italy because the uh, general election of this year pointed to an Italy that is even more divided than before on generation lines, but above all, the old north-south divide is a chasm and it, it, it is widening. Now, Silvio Berlusconi actually would be well aware of that. He gets a lot of strength and support in the south. The, the, the situation from criminality, but particularly the presence of of uh, refugiati of people coming in the boats um, it, it, it is is a real burden and he is also aware that he's got to tread the path of euroscepticism which he will without doing a sort of it'll exit uh, from the EU because the thing that is startling still, although there have been gestural um, activities to support the Italians, there's been not much support nor sympathy for Italy and Spain and the migration problem uh, from Brussels, from Berlin, from uh, The Hague, which is very, very surprising. Um, The French see it because they're partly in, 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 in on the problem. What I think Berlusconi would want to do, he'd be, a, he'd be probably a caretaker prime minister. He would love to be president. He'd love to be he- head of state. That's the thing. I don't know when Sergio Mattarella's um, man- mandate comes up. But I think that for once, um, having been a, a lifelong critic of, of Berlusconi, I have to say that I think he is an important figure. I don't think he's a joke figure because the two protagonists leading the two wings who may or may not make a coalition, Mr. Di Maio of the five, five Stars and Matteo Salvani of the, of, the, of, the, of the League, they are so untried. And Berlusconi, as much as anybody, um, knows that. No, I don't rule him out, but it'd be very interesting to be a fly on the wall when he's in his conversations in the Quirinale with Sergio Mattarella, who is a quiet figure, but 
very, very important and um, probably one of the most significant presidents um, since uh, since Italy has had a, a, a presidency in the aftermath of the Second World War. Uh, Terry, is, is Berlusconi slippery enough to pull this one off? Ha- having sold himself originally as, of course, as the, the outsider maverick who doesn't play by the rules but gets things done, he can now sell himself as the, the sensible establishment candidate. Um, I mean, yeah, nothing seems to be... I mean, rel- seems to be another politician Because relatively, whom, he kind of is. Yeah, for whom no- nothing is sort of impossible. I mean, he's 81, I think, as it stands, but then Malaysia has just elected a leader who is, is 92. Um, <laughs> so he's possibly, you know, spring chicken uh, by comparison. Uh, I think, you know, unfortunately, it's all going to come down to... Uh, the nitty gritty of coalition negotiations and whether they can actually, you know, if they can actually agree a coalition between the Five Star and the League, then, then the question that they seem to be stalling on at the moment and getting kind of gradually days and days of extensions from, from the president is, you know, who do they actually want to be prime minister? Because neither of the uh, Di Maio and Salvini want the job themselves. And they've got to find somebody that's acceptable. Uh, and the other massive problem that even if they do come up with a coalition seems to be finding and affording uh, an economic programme because the things, you know, the trouble with having uh, populist parties is they promise things that people like, but then when it comes down to how you're actually going to pay for, uh, say, a universal income or some uh, kind of attenuated form of a flat tax, which is what the League wants, you know, this starts racking up into tens of billions of euros that the Italian government, you know, at the moment simply hasn't got. And so, yeah, if they do form this coalition, will it last? Can they actually afford to put anything they want. And yeah, in the, is there then a possibility that Silvio Berlusconi kind of, as you say, sneaks in along the side and says, well, look, I, you know, these guys can't do it. I'm the man who can solve it. I mean, Robert, would, would a Berlusconi comeback of any sort, whether to the prime ministership or just to some senior role in government, would it actually be detrimental, as I think people might have thought four or five years ago, to, to Italy's reputation? Or would Italy's international partners, especially in the EU, be happy to take that uh, over the possibility of the kind of Yahoo coalition between Five Star and the League? Well, they know him, so um, I don't think that it can do anything uh, either up or down for Italy's um, uh, reputation. The thing that we're missing in the equation is that he is an extraordinary communicator. He can communicate to Italians. That's how he did it. That's how he turned himself from mogul TV star. He's not a Trump in that way. He's not a reality so, TV guy. That, that comparison has been made. Well, yeah, no, that's wrong because of uh, Berlusconi's business record. I mean, he really did do it in a very <laughs> Italian way. He's a very wealthy man. But it isn't, you, you know, and although there have been questions, as with almost of any businessman um, in Italy, I don't mean to be, but... Um, that I think it, it is paradoxical to see how, I mean, he doesn't go around calling himself a stable genius, but he is, if he's got the trust of the president, if he's got the trust of the people, because I'm taking exactly, Terry's absolutely right, there's no money. And the situation is dire. Looking at youth unemployment, they've got to do something about that. They've got to do something uh, uh, about the South. And I think that, um, you know, Sergio Mattarella, the president, um, 
considered even stepping down and leading some sort of technical administration, if he can forge an alliance with with, with Berlusconi, saying we, we we've got we've got to steady the ship, it will be temporary. Because the one thing that they really mustn't have, and this is where Mattarella has um, laid it on the line, we cannot have elections this year. Italy can't afford them; they're enormously costly, and it would just be more trouble, more postponement of problems that really do need to be addressed. I mean, thinking, thinking. I don't want to be too wild about it, but the banking problem that we knew that was looming so large last year, it isn't completely resolved yet. Well, finally tonight then, uh, exciting news for filmmakers scouting locations for movies which feature large amounts of sand and not many women. At the Cannes Film Festival currently ongoing, Saudi Arabia, many of whose rulers will of course have been in the vicinity at this time of year, announced a generous programme of breaks to encourage foreign filmmakers to shoot in the kingdom. Saudi Arabia is offering a 35% rebate on all spend in the country, rising to 50% on outlay on local workers. This is all quite a leap from a country which opened its first cinema in 35 years last month. Um, Terry, as things stand, do you imagine that Saudi Arabia are going to get knocked down in the rush by foreign filmmakers here? These terms, it should be said, are extraordinarily generous and films are expensive things to make. They are. I think, you know, as you say, it's a huge leap from not allowing cinemas at all to trying to say, right, let's have a, a Saudi-based uh, film industry. I think a lot Saudi of it... Saudi would, they'll call it. So, <laughs> Saudi would, yeah, it could be. Yeah, Jeddah would, maybe. Or, um, uh, the, I think it much so as if it's going to depend on what restrictions the government is going to put on the kind of the content of the film. How much, in a country that doesn't have an awful lot of free expression, are they going to want control of what kind of scenes you have? Or, as you say, you know, whether there are women in your film, whether there are women directing your film or writing your film or driving people around on the set, for instance. You know, that, that rule is, is lightening up. Um in some ways, you've got to start somewhere. I mean, you know, the Hayes Code in Hollywood was was made to be broken. And maybe if you have more influence, you have more openness, people, artists are allowed to start making films that they want. Maybe the government can't control it so much. But I think a lot of it's going to depend on the fine print of what you are allowed to do and what and who you are allowed to film. Hey, Robert, should this be welcomed on that basis, that this is more of Saudi Arabia opening up to the world? and There is there is nothing to undermine a, a kind of a, a staid, stolid dictatorship uh, like the injection of free expression from elsewhere. They're in a tremendous hurry. They're in a tremendous hurry to get people in. Uh, the prince, the crown prince, who's effectively running the, thr- the throne, is very keen on the Project 2030. And they're opening up. Um, I've just come from Saudi Arabia. I was there last week. And I'd previously been there during the tanker war. I'd been there in 91. The contrast is, is enormous. The people round the prince and the people now in the key ministries whether they will succeed, that's the big question. They are very keen. There are, there are leading spokesmen, and it's unbelievable, saying, contact me on WhatsApp. If you want anything, if you're coming back, and if you want to go wherever, wherever, speak to me um, uh, uh, through WhatsApp. It isn't that it's too good to be true. They know what they're doing, and they know, curiously, that it's a race against time. What you are describing is the classic thing of reform. Can you reform in time? It's Tocqueville, this, before heading off an an outright revolution. 
It's it, 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 which is what happened at the beginning of the French Revolution. It's the it's the the Mensheviks, the, the the liberal takeover, as it were, in Russia. And actually, among some of the Saudi princes, there is a real awareness of it. The thing that I find fascinating is that we have a prince driving this. Yes, he talks to Donald Trump. He talks to um, he 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 talks to all kinds uh, all, all all kinds of people, and he is Saudi educated. He's not Western educated. He has British advisors. He has a lot of overseas advisors. And I I find this this the, it's a light bulb moment. He really feels they've got to do it. Otherwise, you know, they're looking at peak oil and then oil running out. They're very worried about the Gulf. I don't think they're being terribly intelligent about Qatar. I don't think they're being terribly intelligent about Yemen in some ways. But but there is the sense is that, 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 you know, it's not that we're on a roll. We've got to get this done. That's what's going at the moment. And I see this very much as part of it. Uh, Terry, it's, an, it's, a, it's a ship that may have sailed given the amount of arms that the Western world sells the Saudis. But should there be any moral squeamishness attended on making films in its territory. It, it is, though it may still be, it may be trying to reform, as Robert suggests, a pretty ghastly regime in almost every respect. Um, yes, I guess there's always that question about, yeah, do you, as Robert's saying, kind of engage in order to promote reform? Um, yeah, I, I imagine a lot of filmmakers were... Eve, whether or not there are contents, you know, restrictions, as I was saying, on, on what they can actually make, might not want to do business in Saudi Arabia. But then it, whenever something opens up like that, there there are usually people who are. And I suppose the dilemma, any if you want to make, you know, the next Lawrence of Arabia or whatever it is, uh, is you have to think is, you know, can I do the work that I want to do within the framework that's there? And can I try and change things? I think the real question is, how secular can they afford to be? And that's the question I wanted to ask almost every Saudi official that I was there. They're making all these noises. They're fed up with the religious police. They're fed up with, with the sect. But the sect, the Wahhabi sect, is still there. And that's the problem. And that does bring us to the end of today's show. Robert Fox and Terry Stiasny, thanks for joining us at Midori House. The show was produced by Ben Ryland, researched by Fernando Augusto Pacheco and Amber Roberts. The studio manager was Sarah Miles. Music next at 1900. It's the Monocle Culture Show. I'm back with more on the day's main stories on the daily at 2200. Midori House returns at the same time tomorrow, 1800 London. I'm Andrew Muller. Thank you for listening.